the book of Luke, chapter 22. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he said to the disciples, and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we we beg that you would send your spirit to speak to your word that we may receive what you have. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, all that you would say. We ask this in Christ's name. How about now? A little better? There we go. All right. Good feedback. Thank you. Uh, there is, um, there's a question I've been thinking about recently, and it's not like a, you know, a brilliant question, but um, it's something that's been on my mind and, and, and hard as I've talked to many of you. And uh, that question is like, where do we find our security? And I mean that in the most serious sense, because life is, uh, is pretty chaotic, and uh, there's a lot of stuff that uh, we realize we can't control. And so what is it that we practically look to, to ground us, to give us stability, to make us feel secure? And uh, as, I, as I thought about this, um, I, I realized, like, some of us actually, we find our security in our retirement, if we're honest. We planned well, and we know we're going to be okay. We're just waiting for that day for it to all click in, and we can kind of do what we want uh, for those last days of our lives. And uh, all of our life is kind of oriented towards working to that end. And that is our, that's, that's our rest. That's our security. Others of us, of us, we're looking for it in tenure. And we think, now that we have it, or we'll soon have it, we think, we're going to finally have rest because we finally have job security. Still others of us, we're actually looking for it in love. We found the one or we're trying to find the one and we know what that means. It means happily ever after, doesn't it? Right? No. Right? Some of us, we root it in family. We actually say, no matter what else happens, at least we have each other. Right? That's, that's my security. That's my rest. And of course, all of these, to a certain extent, they feel pretty great. And you feel pretty secure until you don't. And it's not just that retirement plans are notoriously unreliable, right? Go Google it. Uh, it's, it's, it's not just that, uh, we, do we have enough? It's that having enough does nothing to help you deal with some of those questions that begin to haunt you. Like, what does my life mean? 
What does it add up to? And it's not just that tenured faculty can actually lose their jobs. You know that, right? that's That's a real possibility. It's that tenure doesn't feel so important when your child has cancer. And it's not just that finding the one, right, you're going to realize like, well, you know, okay, like life is tough. Well, turns out that even the one is pretty darn hard to live with. And uh, you're not so great yourself, right? And our hearts get crushed when we root our security in our family, when we have a wayward child or our spouse starts to grow cold and distant. So where do we find ultimate security? Where do we find that kind of rest? And the Christian answer has always been, it is the love of God in Christ. But I want to be honest with you this morning. For most of us, that often feels like a pious platitude. Something you just tell yourself, try to make yourself feel better for just a moment. And I want to suggest this morning that that is because we don't have a thick enough understanding of the love of God in Christ not thick enough to deal with the real hardships and brutalities of life. When I, when I was in seminary, I took a class um, from this notable historian. It was a church history elective. And one of the things he had us read was an essay by the Princeton scholar B.B. Warfield. If you've never heard that name, he lived at the end of the 1800s into the early 1900s, and he was called the Lion of Princeton. All right? he, was a, he was a very well-known academic But the title of the essay that um, my professor had us read was called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And there's really nothing like it that you can find in English literature before Warfield wrote this essay. And in this essay, B.B. Warfield, he draws attention to all the language in the Gospels that attribute emotions to Jesus. Emotions like distress and anger and compassion and love. And and my professor suggested that one of the reasons why Warfield had an eye for this was because of his own story. And uh, I didn't know this, and very few people, it seems, have ever made mention of this, but Warfield uh, got married and took a long honeymoon, a year-long honeymoon, in which he was studying in Leipzig, Germany, And he and his wife used to like to go on these walks. So they're in this honeymoon phase of their marriage. But they got caught in this terrible thunderstorm. And something happened to her. And she became an invalid for the rest of their married life together. And uh, he never left her side for more than a few hours. He taught all his classes in close proximity to his wife. And they never had any children. And she never was able to emotionally engage with him in all the ways you would want in a marriage. My professor said, Warfield went looking to the life of Jesus and wanted to explore the emotional life of our Lord in order to help him deal with his own. And why am I talking about this? Well, this morning, we come to a passage where we get a glimpse into the emotional life of Jesus. And I want to suggest if we pay close attention, we're going to see something magnificent about the love of God in Christ that actually brings us not only security, but joy. So here's the context. We've been talking about uh, the passages leading up to this for a few weeks. But Jesus has just had the Last Supper with his disciples. 
And in that meal, which we celebrate every week, he's vividly portrayed his coming death. But the disciples begin squabbling with one another about who's the greatest. Okay, classic disciple activity. And then we get, as we saw last week, Peter's bravado and and machismo as he's saying, like, I'm going to die for you, Jesus, and for your kingdom. And Jesus is like, Peter, you're not even going to make it through the night without denying me three times. And apparently security is not going to be found in our resolve and our commitment either. So after their meal, Jesus and his disciples walk through the streets of Jerusalem at night. This is where our passage begins. They cross the Kidron Valley. They hike up the Mount of Olives. And they settle down at the place. That's how Luke refers to it. Just like they had done many nights before. He says this was their custom. And we know from other gospels that the place was called the Garden of Gethsemane. It was an oil press. And it, apparently this was just normal activity for Jesus while he was in Jerusalem. As they, would, they would engage in this activity every night. Maybe they fellowship, maybe they rested, maybe they laughed, maybe they prayed. But tonight, things were different. And Luke draws attention to the difference of this night. Two times Jesus says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Once, right when they arrive, that's verse 40, and then again after he returns from praying by himself and finds them snoozing. That's verse 45. And the whole episode has this kind of ominous atmosphere to it. In fact, other Gospels, when they're describing this scene, they tell, tell us that Jesus told his disciples, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. This is emotional life. Luke simply says that Jesus was in agony. Agony is a very unusual word here. Jesus is overwhelmed by something. And in fact, he's experiencing such intense emotional and spiritual anguish that it says sweat pours out of him mingled with blood. There's a medical term for this. It's called hematridosis. And that's when you're experiencing such intense fear and anxiety, the blood vessels around the sweat glands contract and then dilate violently, causing them to rupture. Blood enters the glands and is secreted through the pores of the skin. Now, there's a more common word that we use for something like this today. You know what that word is? Trauma. You read about trauma, how the body keeps the score that what you are experiencing in your eternal life can manifest itself in a bodily way. That you experience something that is so unsettling it has bodily impact. And I don't think it's irreverent to say that Jesus is traumatized. And so the question that we have to ask is, what's the source of that? Right Up, up to this point in the Gospels, Jesus is poised and composed. Even when he drives out the money changers for the temple, we get a description of him making the whip, calculated, going in, doing this. And yes, it's anger, but it's not like he's wild and out of control. But now Jesus, at this moment in the garden, is losing his composure. And we need to grapple with this if if we're not going to have a distorted view of who Jesus is. Now, I know that um, some of you here, you don't yet believe the Christian claims about Jesus, and you stumble over his divinity. You, you're willing to say, like, he's a good man. You know, maybe he was in a great man. He was a great man. He's a wise sage, but but God, I'm not so sure. 
But others of us actually stumble over his real humanity. That Jesus is the God-man, the divine son of God who united himself with a human nature, which means he got tired, he had to shower, and he's capable of experiencing fear and emotional distress. Anything less than embracing both leads to a distorted view of Jesus. So if we're going to take the words of Scripture seriously, we have to wrestle with this. The one who walked on water, who calmed the fiercest storms, who cast out demons, all things we've seen in the Gospel of Luke is now falling on his face in anguish. And the question is why? And it's not just that Jesus is about to die. right? He knew that he was going to die. He even knew how he was going to die. He told his disciples, I'm going to be crucified. He even knew why he was going to die. But something's causing him to stagger in the garden. And we need to ask, what is it and what does it mean for us? Now, I just want to look at two things this morning. I want to look at his agony and what was the source of it. And then I want to look at his obedience and what it means for our security. So let's look first at his agony and, and its source. What, what was causing Jesus this distress? And it can be summed up, summed up in one word. It's the cup. I know that's two words, but it's a definite article, right? Cup. <laughs> Jesus' prayer in verse 40, 41, the center of this episode, carefully constructed by Luke. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. So what is the cup, right? Well, you have to go back to the Old Testament to understand this. Jesus was steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, and he's drawing upon Old Testament imagery. And in the Old Testament, the cup was a metaphor for the wrath of God on human sin and evil. It's drawn from the prophets and from the wisdom literature. You can go find this in Psalm 75. You can go read about this in Isaiah 51. You can find it in Jeremiah 25. And the cup of God's wrath would be something that the nations would drink for their wickedness. But you know what? It was also something that Israel was told it was going to have to drink for its unfaithfulness. And it's depicted primarily in two ways. God hiding his face which means removing his favor and God handing over the wicked to the path of destruction. That's the cup. It's the cup of God's wrath. Now, I know some of you right now are saying, wait, 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 hold on a second. Like, that's not how I see God. God is love, right? He's not wrath. This sounds so medieval, right? But before you tune out, I want you to just consider a few things with me. It is true that in 21st century America, God's wrath feels like a stupid idea to most people. But you do realize that in many ancient cultures and in many parts of the world today, God is love is the stupid idea. And so at the very least, be suspicious of yourself and and don't just go along with the prejudices of any particular culture. But more importantly, I want you to consider this. You cannot have a God of love if he has no wrath. Think about it this way. If someone was assaulting my three precious daughters and I did nothing or was completely indifferent and unmoved, you would rightly question my love for them, 
You would. Because you know that anyone filled with love will experience anger at that which harms their beloved. You know that. It's written on your soul. God's wrath is an expression of his love. His love for truth and beauty and goodness and justice. He is radically opposed to all evil precisely because he is love. Can a God of love be indifferent to child molestation or rape or domestic abuse? Or how about the bombing of hospitals and shelters with children in them in Ukraine? Or what about murder and stealing and lying and cheating? Or racism and exploitation and sex trafficking? Surely not. Not if he is love. You see, there's this ecosystem to God's attributes. So when you think about an ecosystem, it all hangs together. And sometimes, you know, we modern smarties come in and we're like, why don't we just wipe out this species that's so annoying and get rid of it? Not realizing it has an impact on every other species in the ecosystem. So if you try to get rid of God's wrath, you actually spoil his love. You turn it into sentimental mush, which is why you don't feel secure which is why we don't have rest. See, if we fail to see both God's love and God's wrath, there will be major spiritual dysfunction in our lives. Right? If God is only love, you know what it produces? Spiritual spoiled brats and narcissists. If God is only wrath, you know what it, you know what it creates? Spiritually abused children. We need God's love and God's wrath. They go together. They're part of... God's beautiful attributes. And we got to hang on to both of them. God is a God of love and of justice. Don't drive a wedge to what belongs together. The cup represents God's just judgment on sin and evil. And this is the source of Jesus' agony in the garden. He's beginning to taste the cup. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, is starting to feel the weight of God's judgment against sin. And it's falling upon his shoulders, and he staggers and stumbles. It was agonizing. So you look like the gospel authors don't actually draw a ton of attention to the physical suffering of crucifixion. We read about it in Roman history, right? But that's not where the focus is in the gospel writings. It's not the physical pain of crucifixion or the mental distress of rejection and humiliation that caused Jesus' knees to buckle. It's the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world on his back. He's going to endure the divine judgment which sin deserves. This moment is the opening act of Jesus' passion. And he's beginning to experience something that he's never experienced before. The father's displeasure. His father's disapproval. And as Fleming Rutledge writes, he's taking upon himself the judgment that would have been directed to someone else. This is his agony, right? Think about it like this. Jesus had lived all eternity in perfect loving fellowship with his father. His ministry, his earthly ministry began with the divine affirmation, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. His entire ministry was done with the approval of his heavenly father, but now for the first time ever, he's beginning to experience the father's displeasure. 
and he's wilting beneath it. He's tasting the cup. The judgment for sin that would fall upon Jesus was beginning to be experienced long before the first nail was driven into his skin. You know, there's a backstory to this. The father and the son planned this together. But don't overlook the agony. The agony is not a bug in the system. It is a feature. Jesus experienced the spiritual agony of bearing your sins and mine in his body and soul. That's the agony of Jesus that we see here. But I want to look at the second thing. And that is his obedience. Jesus' prayer that we're breaking in two here. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And on this prayer hangs our entire salvation. Do you know what Jesus is asking in this prayer? He's asking, is there any other way? Is there any other way that sinners can be saved apart from me drinking the cup? Is it possible for people to be reconciled to you apart from me being cut off from your love and favor? Why is Jesus asking this? Some of us are like, "Is, is is this like a flawed moment in Jesus? Is this a sign of his imperfection? He doesn't want to do the Father's will? No, this is actually a sign of his perfection. Because the one thing a righteous person would never want is to lose the Father's smile the Father's approval, the Father's delight and favor. But here's the thing. There's no other way. There's no other way. If you've ever wondered, is Jesus really the only way? Here's one answer to that question. (laughs) Saving sinners is impossible without this sin-bearing death of the Savior. And this is really important to understand if you want to understand Christianity. Because many of us, you know, theoretically, we don't disagree with the fact that God can and should judge. We just disagree with his judgment. Who should get it and for what? It's always for them and for what they have done. It's not for us. And that's because we take other people's sin very seriously, but not our own. Ours are mistakes. Ours are imperfections. We were having a bad day. This isn't really who I am. But sin is utterly serious. And though we may not be guilty of every kind of sin, the seeds of every kind of sin are in our hearts. If you've ever broken a promise or not told the truth because you're afraid of what might happen to you or exaggerated to make yourself look better or felt envious of someone else's successes or taken something that wasn't yours or hated someone in your heart or spent most of your day thinking of no one but yourself, then you should recognize the seed of every kind of atrocity is there inside you and in me. We deserve to drink the cup. But the astonishing thing about Jesus' agony in the garden is that we, we discover that someone is willing to drink it for us. Like, is sin serious? Like, ask yourself that question. <laughs> you bet it is. It's so serious that it takes the death of the Son of God to deal with it. There's no other way. And he was willing. Jesus was obedient to the Father's will. Here in this moment in the garden, he's in agony. But he surrenders, he submits, and he obeys. And he does that because we don't. 
this was one of those moments that it's, it's just stunning to take in because you're looking at what God the Son was willing to do in order to save. And in fact, I would say that His obedience, obedience unto death, is all the more beautiful and magnificent because He knew what it would take going through this experience, beginning to taste the cup. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the 18th century theologian and, and, and uh, preacher, I gave a sermon on this one time, and he wrote that in the garden, Jesus was set at the mouth of the furnace so he could feel the heat and know what he was about to endure. The cup was set down before him so he would begin to taste of its dreadfulness. And I started thinking about this, and I was like, have you ever had that experience when you've gotten in over your head? You know, you've decided that you're going to help someone out only to realize that it demanded way more of you than you realized? And you're saying to yourself, I I didn't know it was going to be like this. If I had known, I would not have agreed. In fact, I would not have gotten involved at all. But Jesus knew. He was tasting the cup. And he surrendered to the will of the Father. In fact, the depiction here is so magnificent because as he's asking his disciples to pray both for themselves and as other Gospels remind us, to pray with him. He goes off by himself and comes back and they're sleeping. And it's tempting to just be like, you know, a bunch of dummies, loser disciples. But Luke says they were sleeping because of grief. This moment was undoing them. And they're falling asleep, right? Because they don't know what else to do. Jesus is utterly alone and he's looking at these disciples. And he's saying, Father, if there's another way, Let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And here's a a beautiful picture of the perfect humanity of Jesus. That he is submitting his loudest desire to be spared the loss of his father's favor to his deepest desire, which is to spare us by doing the father's will which is exactly the opposite of what you and I do all the time. We live by our loudest desires every single day, and they wreck us and ruin us. And Jesus in his true humanity through prayer is bringing his loudest desire and submission to his deepest desire, which is to do the Father's will. You know, it's worth noting here, prayer is not a tool given to us that we might bend God's will to ours. It's actually a way of doing the opposite, of bending our will to his. Jesus was obedient where we are not, and on this hangs our entire salvation. You know, man, I wish we had hours to go into this, but it's remarkable when you you consider the storyline of Scripture that the ruin of humanity began in a garden with disobedience to God. And we thought it would bring us life, but what it actually brought was death. And here, the restoration of humanity is beginning in a garden, but with obedience to God. And yet it will come through a sacrificial death that brings life. You know, when I was a a youth pastor uh, back in the late 90s in Dallas, uh, one year I had a group of sophomore guys in a Bible study that were a whole lot of fun. I mean, they were wild and crazy and a lot to manage. 
and uh, they had difficulty focusing, right, as sophomore boys often do. So uh, after, I don't know, several months of uh, putting up with their shenanigans, I decided it was time to up the ante and get everyone a little more serious about studying the Bible together, because after all, that's like what we were gathering for. So I came up with this great idea, which was to give them homework every week, right, and uh, they were to read the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at and come with their questions and thoughts and that kind of stuff. And we'd have everybody share. And if you didn't do your homework and you showed up to the Bible study empty-handed, every other guy in that group got to pick one thing from the fridge and put it in a cup, and you had to drink it. Okay? So these are sophomore guys. They're pretty creative when it comes to nastiness. So milk and OJ and horseradish and sriracha and soy sauce, crushed up grapes under their feet, mustard, ketchup, mayonnaise, jelly, nasty, 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 nasty. You didn't do your homework. You're going to drink the cup. And you know what we call that cup? The cup of wrath. Okay? And there was this one kid named Charlie Motter, and I could tell you stories about him all day long. He had to drink this cup like three or four times in a row until one day Charlie Motter didn't show up for Bible study. And I thought to myself, uh-oh, like I've, I've pushed things too far here. But the other kids were like, let's go to Charlie's house and make him drink the cup. And they're like, drink the cup, drink the cup, drink the cup. And then the strangest thing happened. Tyler Parr, a quieter one of the guys, sophomore football player, spoke up and he said, I'll drink the cup for Charlie. And everybody was like, what? Why would you do that? And he's like, I'll drink the cup for Charlie. And so everyone went crazy. And they picked the grossest, most disturbing concoction. I mean, it was filthy. I could almost like want to vomit by smelling it. And that night, Tyler Parr drank it to the dregs. <laughs> now, that's a silly story and potentially distracting, except for what happened right afterwards. That once the laughter died down and the silliness kind of got out and Tyler threw up, um, <laughs> the night took a surprisingly serious turn as some of the guys began to Understand the gospel for the first time. This wasn't my intention, by the way. <laughs> but one by one, they were like, Jesus drank the cup for me. Jesus drank the cup for me. And that was beginning of a lifelong change for several of the guys in that group. Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that you and I can drink the cup of salvation. That's what we do every Sunday. This cup is the blood of my covenant for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus in his agony and obedience drinks the cup of wrath that you and I might drink the cup of salvation. When this gets in your soul, it brings a security into your life that you didn't think was possible. It brings a security to you in your shame because every one of us has stuff that we're carrying around right now that threatens to undo us inside. Things we've done, things that we didn't do that we knew we should have. And there is nothing that can speak to the core of your shame like the, fa the fact of Jesus saying, I drink the cup for you. 
There is not a drop of wrath left. There's only salvation and forgiveness of sins. You see, in our darkest moments, we don't just need to re-narrate our story around a better version of ourselves. We need to experience and taste divine forgiveness, which comes from Jesus drinking the cup. You know what else this brings security in? It brings security in our suffering. Because no matter how much we want to try to control our life and make it go the way we want it, suffering upends us. It finds us. It undoes us. And you'll never be able to face those hours of darkness unless you see that Jesus faced the deepest darkness for you. That he understands and that he drank the big cup. So whatever little cup you and I have to drink, it's not a cup of God's judgment. Because Jesus drank that to the dregs. Friends, this is the hope of the gospel that is to ballast to the soul. It is the purpose for which Jesus came. But you'll never get it if, unless you understand the agony of his obedience. That what he did was not just show up and perform a bunch of shenanigans to impress us and say, oh, wow, you're divine, right? He united himself with real humanity, experienced the miseries of this life, the agonies of the soul, and was obedient, as the Apostle Paul writes, even unto death, death on a cross. For you, for me, for our salvation, because he came to drink the cup, the cup of wrath so that you and I could have the cup of blessing. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your truth and your justice. That you're a God who's not indifferent to the brokenness of the world and the brokenness in our lives. But you're a God who in your great wisdom and your great power and uh, even in your remarkable humility willing to come down, enter in, and bear the judgment that sin deserves. You do this for us and for our salvation. Lord, forgive us for how lightly we take sin and how lightly we take you and how lightly we take grace. And it's no surprise just how little joy and security we feel. So God, would you mash this into our hearts in such a way Uh, that we would feel the security of your love and favor, that we would have our hope firmly planted on Jesus in his agony and his obedience, and we would find rest in the fact that the cup of wrath has been drank to the dregs for all who belong to Christ, and that we get to drink the cup of salvation, and we'll one day celebrate that forever in the consummation of your kingdom. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.